Sunday gives us perspective. Preachers are a persnickety people. <laughs> they are interesting, aren't they? You're like, yes, yes, Pastor, you are persnickety. Heard a story about three preachers who were having a conversation in the midst of a telephone man who was doing some work near them, and they were having a conversation about the best posture of prayer. And the first preacher said, well, the best, of course, the best posture of prayer is to be on your knees, as it says in Scripture. Second preacher said, well, no, that's not true. The best posture I've found is to be standing, lifting your hands up to heavens, and that's the best one that I've experienced. And, and then the, the next preacher interjected, um, no, no, the best one is to, just as the, the psalmist says and so many times, is to lie flat on the ground, prostrate on the floor before God. And the repairman could not hold back any longer. He said, hey, fellas, the best praying I've ever done is upside down at the top of a telephone pole. <laughs> oh, man. Prayer is important. It's essential. And may I ask you right now, before we jump in and dive into Mark chapter 15, May I ask you to pray specifically this week for two things. One is who pray for who God is leading you to invite, to join you, to pick up and join you next Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's so important that we are an invitational people. And we've got room. We've got room in the 8, sir, eight o'clock service and 9.30 service and 11. I don't know who's coming to what, but there should be room for us to invite as many people as we possibly can this week. So would you pray? Like seriously. Like, I don't just say that because I'm, I'm challenging myself. Like, who, who am I going to invite this week to join me? Uh, the, the Super Bowl of worship is Easter Sunday, right? Like, we're going to have a great time Sunday. Jesus is going to be lifted up. There's going to be incredible flowers on the cross as you come in. The best photo op of the year is standing in front of that cross where the flowers are, where we remember that Jesus is risen. Man, what an incredible day Sunday is going to be. Who are you going to invite? Would you pray about that? I just challenge you. Would you pray about that? Second thing is this, I would ask that you pray, pray sincerely and significantly uh, for your church, Hope Church in Montgomery, to prepare for what God's going to do in the future. God is moving, our community is growing, our church is growing, and, and we are convinced, I am convinced that we need to take a posture of prayer, seeking the Lord as we have a God-sized vision and we have a faith-filled vision that God's going to do something incredible. He's doing something incredible. I don't even know what that means to pray that. I just know that he's leading us to get on our knees and pray and position ourselves as completely and fully dependent on him. Would y'all do that? Just asking y'all, would y'all do that? I need prayer. We need prayer to get ready for what God's going to do in the coming days. Humor is important. Y'all know me, it's, it's one part of what I do, the way I communicate, I, I sell silly jokes and I put humor in. I think, I think God created humor, he's got a humor, look around, I mean he called someone like me to be his child and to be a pastor, this introvert, God's got a crazy, crazy sense of, of humor. It is important, but humor stands in stark contrast to our passage and content of today. Turn with me to Romans, uh, Romans. Turn with me to Mark, not to Romans. We won't even be in Romans at all today. We'll be in Mark <coughs> chapter 15. 
And we're going to begin in verse 16 where Justin Justin Coffey left off. And he started our journey, our road to the cross. And and we're going to get there today. And and, uh, we're going to be there again on Friday at our Good Friday service. And then you've got to come on Sunday, of course. But humor is in stark contrast to the nature of what we're going to read today. And let's be honest, like uh, those of us who, who know what happened at the cross, this passage is rough and tough. It's just a hard one to read. It, it's just one of those things we, we know it's true. We know this really happened to Jesus, but it's so tough. But as humor stands in contrast to that toughness, I want you to focus today, the lens, the filter of what I want to approach the scripture as is is one of contrast. Contrast brings perspective. Contrast brings beauty. And contrast brings power. It's that light and dark. It's that fuzzy and clear. It's intelligent and not. It's white and and black, and we could go on and on. I read this week in an art article. It says this, contrast in a composition, an art composition, refers to its darks and lights regardless of its colors. For example, the color blue can be so dark it appears almost black, or so light it appears almost white. In art, the degree of darkness or lightness of a color is called its value. A color can be any degree of dark to light, and there may be many values of the darkest dark and the lightest light, but listen to what it says. Use contrast, if you're an artist, use contrast to create drama and command attention in a work of art. The eye is immediately drawn to areas of high contrast. So you can use that to your advantage by deciding what your center of interest is to be. And so work with me today as we use contrast to give us the center of interest of this passage that we are going to read. Because contrast is a tool also used by every good author. You need contrast to be able to see the power of a work, the beauty of a work, and the perspective of a work. And in this case... Mark, in the grip of the Holy Spirit, writes. And as he writes this passage, he writes with powerful contrast. Let's read Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus. Remember Pilate? He just released Barabbas, and he gave Jesus handed over Jesus to be flogged and handed him over to be crucified to the soldiers. In verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away from the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, we don't know exactly how many soldiers that was. It can be as, many, as few as 12, as many as 2,000. It's most likely more like two to 300. We don't really know, but it was not a small number of soldiers in that company. And they put a purple robe on him, that color of royalty, and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on him, the crown, of course, to go on a king. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. Man, it's just tough to read. They spit on him. 
falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. I gathered myself, wow. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The Latin of that is Calvary. We use that many times. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others. They said, and boy, didn't he? I mean, we just started reading about how he saved others. We started the book of Mark. We, we, we're kind of... We kind of landed in Mark chapter 3, and he's already been rescuing and saving and healing and casting out demons. Man, he did that so much, and they saw this. That's what they were saying. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Oh, man, that's tough. That's rough. I don't know how many of you guys have watched Iron Chef America or the original Iron Chef that was translated into English. We watched that a lot years ago. Our students have had Iron Chef for the last three years competition, and that's a lot of fun. And, you know, they have a secret ingredient, and that's the show they have a secret ingredient that they have to, whatever that is, the, the leader chooses that, and they have to use that as the main, the main aspect of all the things they make, appetizer, main dish, all of those things, dessert. And uh, at the end, when they do the cooking, they have the judges there, it's usually three judges, and uh, then the, the guy who's, who's commentating, who's, who's directing it all, he'll ask the, the chef a question. Do you remember the question? He'll always say, what was your approach to the secret ingredient? Well, as we read this passage, and I know you've probably heard this passage before, you've probably heard it preached on many times in your life. The approach to the secret ingredient usually in this text is to focus on the suffering. And boy, did Jesus suffer. He was the perfect fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm not going to read it, but I just encourage you that Isaiah wrote 800 years before Christ, but he, he prophesied what exactly that Messiah would do and live through and accomplish. So homework for this week, go read Isaiah chapter 53. Also tough reading. And so if I were to preach that, maybe I'd go back to that today, but I'm not. But, but he was the perfect fulfillment of the suffering serpent. Now, Mark here doesn't give, he gives plenty of details to know this was so hard. I mean, this was so significant. He didn't go into much detail as say Matthew or, or Luke or John did when it came to crucifixion because Mark, 
Mark here, I believe, is assuming that his readers would understand how heinous, how hard, how much torture crucifixion is. And so he's even implied even deeper, like this was so incredibly difficult. It's the worst way that someone that the Romans would choose. This was the worst punishment, the worst way to kill someone. He doesn't give us the details, but if you dare, go this week and watch a Jesus film. Watch the end of the Jesus film. And that's tough. If you want to go even deeper, go watch The Passion of the Christ. Now, do know that that one is so graphic. It's rated R. Not for any language, not for any other things, but just because it's so graphic in nature of what Jesus went through. Man, it was, I remember, never forget the moment I watched that movie. I was a youth pastor at First Baptist Hewitt outside of Waco, and we took them to watch that when it came out. And uh, golly, man, there was just a silence in the room. No one could even speak leaving that movie. So if you want any deeper kind of picture of what that was like, Jesus, the suffering a servant. If you want to focus on that as your approach to this week, go watch that. But we will approach the secret ingredient in a different way. Now, here, the secret ingredient is the Word of God. It, it, it is Jesus, and He was uh, the Word that became flesh. So let's realize that I have no power today, nor do my words, but God's Word has so, so much power to speak to us today. And I trust it will as we open our ears and open our hearts for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding in how do we receive the Word of God effectively and then put it into practice diligently here. But today, our approach to the secret ingredient, this passage, this truth, God's Word about Jesus and what He did for us is to focus on the mocking voices. The mocking voices. Because as we focus on the mocking voices, we will see contrast. We will see unique perspective. We will see the beauty of this passage. And we will see the power of God's sovereignty and His redemptive heart. If you take your notes, the first contrast I want you to take note of, the contrast at the cross is not royalty versus king of kings. You see the mocking voices in verse 18 and verse 26 and verse 32, 31 as well. You have the soldiers mocking Jesus and and putting these things on him, the robe and the crown of thorns, mocking him, king of the Jews, like you're no king, we'll mock you with these things. In verse 26, we see written above him, Pilate most likely had those words penned, the king of of the Jews right above Jesus where he was crucified. And then the religious leaders and the chief priests, they mocked him saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. The king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, all of these things are mocking Jesus. You're no King, isn't it so interesting, the fickleness of people? It was some of these same people in the, in the crowds that, as we think about Palm Sunday, Hosanna, 
Messiah Jesus, save us is what Hosanna means. Save us. You are the one that came to rescue. And just a few days later, they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Man, aren't we a fickle people? We are such a fickle people. As we think about royalty, they were mocking Jesus for claiming to be king and the complete contrast that this is the most kingly king that ever walked this earth. The power of this contrast is we experience Jesus as the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. Now we, we know that lion and kind of one of those things not there, but our, our graphic for the series is a lion. And why? Because lion is a symbol of royalty. That's why you'll see it, these big mansions or the kings that will be on all of, the, all of the shields and all of those things because it's a, it's a symbol of royalty. And so it's, it's kind of like this. In the midst of all this mocking and the mocking voices, it's, I wish that these people could just wake up and realize who they were standing in front of. The Lion of Judah. What does that come from? Well, it first is rooted in Genesis. When, uh, in Genesis 49-49, when, Je- 49, 49, when Jacob was blessing his sons, and Judah is refor- referred to as a lion's cub. And then in verse 10, whose scepter shall not depart from Judah. So what, what that, that was saying was there would be there would be something significant that happens in the lineage of Judah. That there would be a lion that would birth one day, and he would be a king. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I bet you didn't see that coming on Palm Sunday. We're going to unpack Revelation chapter 5. I just want to read this, because I think it's so important. This idea of the lion of Judah. So this is John writing, and he's having a vision. God's given him through the Holy Spirit a vision, a dream of of just a perspective of our reality and the end times and all that's coming. I'm not going to unpack all the end times today. Don't worry. We don't have time for that today. But we know in the big scheme of things that revelation is there. God has given it to us so that we can understand that, that, that judgment is coming. That day is coming. And we are to be ready. And we are to help other people be ready, right? And so that, that's the purpose of Revelation. And in, in chapter 4, he has this vision of this, the Almighty sitting on his throne. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And so I'm going to stop there, just pause right there. Those two things are really important. There's writing on both sides. That's not normal. What does that mean? If it's on both sides, that, mean, that means that that writing is complete. It's complete. You know it's complete it's first if it's both sides. And also there, there's a scroll where it's sealed with seven seals. Why is that important? Seven is the number for complete. And so it is sealed completely. And we'll see why in a minute. And I saw a mighty angel. Not just an angel. They're all big and almighty. But this is a mighty angel. I think that's important. Proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So the implication there is even this mighty angel can't do it. He can't. No one can do it that they could find. And then one of the elders said to me, 
do not weep. Oh, sorry. Verse 4. I skipped one. I wept. This is important. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So here he is weeping. He's weeping because no one could open it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we're talking. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Now David was in the line of Judah, right? Has triumphed. And I love that next phrase, three words. He is able. I love that. To open the scroll and its seven seals. And so finally, all this that that was foretold, there is someone who can unpack and unroll that scroll. That that complete manifestation of the truth of God. and, and, And that's finally here. And so Jesus is the Lion of Judah, Lion of Judah. He is in the root of David, and he has triumphed. But look at verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb of seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Don't, let, don't make me today explain all of these things. Let's get the overarching truth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So, so this one, the, the lion of Judah, went and took that scroll. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons for every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It goes on saying in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It goes on to say at the end of verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Why is this so significant? That Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Well, he became the Lion of Judah when he became the perfect Lamb of God. That's what it says there in verses 6 and following. Jesus showed himself to be the Lion of Judah, the King of all kings, when he gave of himself. So I wondered to myself this week, in this passage, why was, why was John weeping about that scroll? What do you think was in that scroll? This is a hard one. And no one really kind of lands on this. There's a lot of discussion about this. What would be in the contents of that scroll that would cause John, that it is sealed, that would cause John to weep over it? I wondered about that. And here's what I landed on. It's got to be the Lamb's book of life. It's got to be, John had such a heart for the early church. Remember we studied 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John together? We saw the shepherd's heart of John. He had to know. I, I got to know who, who's in there. I got to know if those I've, I've poured my life into really get it, really understand who the Lion of Judah is and what he has become, the king of kings who has come to give 
life. And so he weeps. And then in the vision, he experiences and sees the lion, who is the only one who can access and open the scroll. And then if you turn to Revelation 20, we won't. But you'll see what the Lion of Judah does. He unrolls that scroll and he out he outlays and he begins to judge according to those whose name are in the Lamb's book of life and those who aren't. You see, the contrast in the story is you have all of these people mocking Jesus, mocking him, proclaiming he is the king. And one day, here's the contrast, one day they will stand before that king when he sits on his throne. And they will have to give an answer to the king of kings. You see, the contrast gives us power, gives us beauty, gives us understanding to the truth. The second thing is this, the contrast of chief sinner versus chief savior. You see, if you look at where Jesus was positioned, it says he was positioned in verse 27. Got to turn back. I'm in Revelation. We'll turn back to Mark chapter 15. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. These were thieves, really bad thieves. And where did they put Jesus? They put him in the middle. What was that a symbol of? That this guy was the worst. I mean, these two on the edges... They're bad. And what they would have done is you would have had a cross here, and you would have had a cross over here, and right there on that hill of Calvary Golgotha, they would be in front of them in the middle. But that would be the worst. The worst person in that they were being crucified. And they put Jesus there. So he was positioned as the worst sinner. But what he was, he was the chief. Savior. I mean, they, their heroes of the faith would have been Moses. Their heroes of the faith would have been people like Elijah. Or they would have been people like King David. But what these people couldn't smell the coffee and wake up to is that those heroes of the past were microcosms of the real hero of the story of God. And that is Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 Peter stands before the Sanhedrin and he says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so the power of this contrast, chief sinner versus chief savior, is that we see how Jesus meets our greatest need. Jesus met our greatest need in our passage that we're reading today. He was on on that cross to solve our biggest problem. And what is that? Sin. You see, that's the irony. That's the contrast. They put him in a place where he is the chief sinner. But he was taking on those people's sins right there at that moment. He was taking on my sin. And so instead of being chief sinner, he's right there prominently in front of us as the chief savior of the world. Dr. Tony Evans says, asking God to address other issues in our life without addressing sin is like having cancer and asking the doctor to give you aspirin for the pain without treating the disease. Oh, we, do we need God to intervene for so many things in our life. But nothing pales in the comparison for our need for a Savior. And that's exactly what we're reading about today. Some of you guys are into 
um, to, into track, and my son was in track this year, so I got to watch him throw the discus, which is fun and cool, and some of you guys are into Olympics, and some of you aren't, but uh, this idea of the high jump is, is phenomenal to me. The last track event I went to with Josiah was his last one, I was walking through, and I saw these girls, and they were jumping the high jump, I don't know if you've ever watched that, but they kind of run, and they jump kind of behind it, and they go over as high as they can. You know what the, the world record for high jump is? Eight foot, two inches. If I try to high jump today, I may be able to get four foot. I don't know. I mean, maybe. Like, that, that may be a stretch. Eight foot, two inches. But then there's another event at track. And right next, as I looked at these people doing the high jump, right next to them were the pole vaulters. And, and they're running just like people jumping with their own feet, Right? But they have, this, they have this long pole in front of them, and they're running, and they are also trying to get as high as they can. They're running, and then they use this pole to do the same thing to get over that pole. Guess what the world record for the pole vault is? 20 foot, just over 20 foot. That's a long way up. That's pretty much sure that's higher than that right there. That is a long way up. You see, the pole vaulters can get so much higher than any man could themselves. You know, that's the truth when it comes to our life. We are a finite people, and we are limited. And we can try as hard as we can to jump as high as we can, but it'll never be high enough to have true life. It'll never be high enough it will never be good enough for us to deserve a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, in our reading today, he hangs on that cross and he is our pole. He is the pole in which propels us, vaults us over ourselves, over our sin, through darkness into life. Jesus is the chief Savior. And the third one to me is so, so good. This contrast, the third one there in your notes, is lacking strength versus controlling strength. He said they were mocking him. They were mocking him in verse 31. He saved others, but he, what's the word? He can't. He can't save himself. Like this guy has no power. He can't even save himself. Look at him, mocking him. But Jesus was not weak. He was sovereignly and perfectly timing his show of power. He was waiting. The best things in life are worth waiting for. And here these religious leaders were, and here these soldiers were mocking Jesus, and they were looking for the wrong thing at the wrong time. Time. You see, life's all about timing. And sometimes we just have to wait for the best things. Not yet. God says, not yet, not yet, not yet. Wait for it. Wait for it. And these people had to wait just a little longer, just a matter of minutes and a few hours. Jesus was waiting. It wasn't his lack of strength. It was the control of his strength. May I invite you to come on Friday? Just wait for it. I think it's important that we embrace the contrast of this season. So you've got to come on Friday if you plan on coming on Sunday. Because if you do, you'll see the beauty of this season. If you do, you'll see the power of this season. And by the way, those flowers, 
that we bring on Friday night, what they're for is to remember that Jesus really did go into that grave. And it really is much like you would bring flowers or send flowers when somebody passes away. So it's not as much about celebration on Friday. It's very much about our king is dead. And we'll lay those flowers and put them on the cross, and then we'll come on Sunday. And that'll be the day of contrast. It'll be the complete opposite. And I do hope that you come. But Jesus was not only perfectly timing his show of power, he was focusing his power. Not on himself. That's what the people were asking. Save yourself. You see, heroes don't save themselves, do they? Heroes save others. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what he came to do. He is the hero of heroes. He did not in that moment save himself because he was acting out the salvation of the world. He literally, as those people were mocking, as you hear those mocking voices, save yourself, you are, you can't do it. He's on that cross for their sins. He's on that cross for the people's sins. He's on that cross for the soldier's sins. He's on that cross for the people hanging next to him, in which one of them got it and one of them didn't, right? That this is this the contrast. He was there for my sins. He didn't save himself so he could save me. He didn't save himself so he could save you. And so the power of this contrast is this. Jesus has the power to redeem everyone and everything. That's so good. Jesus has the power to redeem everyone and everything. And may I say this, I just feel like saying it. If you are struggling today, that probably includes everybody here with something in life. And you are waiting. God, would you just intervene? Would you help Know this, Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not inept to show his power over you. Today, through our passage, specifically through this part of it, there's an invitation and a challenge to trust him. Trust his timing. Trust his power. Trust his sovereignty. Trust his faithfulness. He will intervene. And he did here, didn't he? In his own way. No one even knew what that was like. But he did intervene. In a much bigger way than they could ever comprehend. He did. And he will for you. He will unleash his kind character over you. He will bring his healing power. In his way. In his time. He is with you. He is not absent. I have a friend that just moved from Conroe uh, to Arizona. His name is Sterling Edwards. He's been through a lot the past few years. He wrote this a few weeks ago, kind of a poem called The Empty Chair. And there's a picture, if you can just imagine, in this post he put on social media, there's a picture of an Adirondack chair that's empty. No one's in it. It's empty. He says this, our living room furniture currently consists of two Adirondack chairs. We arrived in Phoenix a few days ago. He literally just moved a few weeks ago. But our moving truck hasn't made it there yet. I have looked over that empty chair quite a few times this morning, 
I envision that Jesus is sitting in the chair asking me how I am doing. Jesus is not being passive. Jesus is not staring out the window. Jesus is leaning in. I have had the chance to pray through several things that are on my heart and mind this morning. This includes praying for Ezra's fever to drop. This includes praying for Madison and Braden, who were Ezra's parents. Madison is his daughter, and, and Ezra was born about a year ago with some major, major complications and wasn't expected to live. And so he's pouring on his heart. This includes praying for Ezra's fever to drop. This includes praying for Madison and, and Braden. This includes praying for my dad's health as well as my mom who lived in Magnolia. This includes praying for other people, other needs, and other situations. But as I envisage Jesus leaning in, I also hear him speak. I am reminded of his promises. And I am reminded of the truth that God is good. That God loves my family more than I love my family. That God is in control, that I am not in control. That God is holy. That God is wise. That God is omnipotent in every way. That God knows all that will unfold this day and every day. That God can be trusted. That God is the potter and I am the clay. That God is not apathetic but cares more than I do. That God is not worried, that God is not caught off guard, that God is in charge and not asking me to be in charge. That God is for me, that God is with me, that God is close, closer than the chair next to me. Jesus is leaning in to each of us today, he says. Don't hesitate to bring him every need. Don't hesitate to bring him every worry. Don't hesitate to lean on every promise. And he gives a final statement. Jesus is closer than we realize. The band's going to come and we're going to have a closing song. And it really is a celebration of that truth. Our passage today reveals that truth that Jesus cares for us. He loves us. He didn't leave us in our greatest problem. He came so that we could be with Him. So let's close remembering these key truths. That truth of Palm Sunday, that Jesus is King. He reigns, and He is a good King. He's a good King. When we say He's our Lord, that is our surrender to a good and mighty and gracious King who loves us. He is King, and He is Savior. He redeems out of his kindness and graciousness and justice. He reigns in redemption. He loves to rescue. He loves to rescue. And Jesus, the third thing, is power. He is power. There's not a thing that he can't do. There's not a situation that he can't redeem. And he is here. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is the reality of the world. That we don't deserve these truths, but you love us so. And you're gracious and you're merciful. And today we claim and we remember that you are the King of kings and you are the chief Savior. And you never and still and will never lack power. You are omnipotent, and you are exactly what we need. And today we celebrate that truth. And not only is that true, but that you are here.
and we can worship you and we can remember you this day. It's in your name we pray.